0: Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. In a new book from Avery called Kill Shot, A Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease, award-winning Associated Press investigative journalist Jason Duren tells the story of the worst contaminated drug crisis in U.S. history in which tainted steroids produced by the New England Compounding Center sickened thousands of patients across the country with fungal meningitis and resulted in over 100 deaths. I'm very pleased to welcome Jason Durant to our show now. Hello. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Your book reads like a detective story how a medical mystery was was solved and and there's even a trial.
1: Right. Yeah, when it, it was a medical mystery when I started looking into this for the first time after the trials in 2017. Uh, You know, I was originally, my curiosity was piqued because here were two pharmacists in a federal court being charged like mobsters with murder um, under the RICO statute. And I just thought that was really interesting. And so, you know, kind of as a curious reporter, I started digging deeper and deeper into it. And what I learned the deeper I got into it was that the trials were just the end of a vast, unique American tragedy that exposed, you know, multiple systemic failures, and I thought, wow, here's a really important story um, that had continued long past the news cycle from when the outbreak happened in 2012 and 2013. There was so much more to be told, and and it's still a problem um, that this ev- huge event uncovered that needed to, uh, some more sunlight um, and you know hopefully some sort of solution, um, and so yeah, that started me down the path of of writing this book.
0: Well, I suspect a lot of our listeners have never even heard of this. And uh, on your on your book cover, it says, the untold story of the worst contaminated drug crisis in U.S. history. Uh, it's a pretty chilling story. And yet, I don't remember a lot of newspaper or television coverage. But let's talk about it. Uh, this, it it's, starts with a deadly outbreak of fungal meningitis in, in 2012. And you begin with the illness and subsequent death of Thomas Rabinsky in Smyrna, Tennessee. What were his initial symptoms?
1: Right. So Thomas Rybinski was a previously healthy man in his 50s who, um, like a lot of the people who suffered during this tragedy, he worked um, in the auto industry uh, in the Midwest, and he um, suffered from some back pain. And a lot of people who suffer from chronic pain don't want to get into opioids. And so the, the alternative are steroid injections. And Thomas Rybinski received epidural steroid injections regular, regularly from a clinic in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and that re, you know, relieved him from his chronic pain, allowed him to ride his motorcycle and do all the um, uh, pleasure activities. He was a, he was a, a, a boater. He woke up uh, one day in the summer of 2012 with a headache feeling nauseous um, and, and disoriented um, and by the end of the day on a boating trip with his wife and some friends um, he felt really bad and they didn't know what it was and you know he would end up in the hospital and within a couple of weeks be unresponsive after uh, suffering from a, a, a really rare type of meningitis and a stroke a corresponding stroke um, as well which which a number of the patients had these very odd strokes and you know, they're showing up at the hospital and the doctors can't figure out what microbe, what caused the source of this meningitis. And then the strokes hit. And this is a really unique and unusual case. And so it launched this part of my interest in this also was the science um, that, w- that re- you know, science un- uh, unknotted this, this knot, this riddle. Um, and so I, I wanted to take readers through that process of how they how epidemiologists and doctors kind of uncovered this, this disease and then also exposed the source, which was a compounding pharmacy.
0: A key fact is that the frequency of steroid injections to treat back pain in Medicare patients increased 121% from 1997 to 2006. I guess that's when records were being kept. But th- that would mean that uh, steroid injections became the treatment of choice around that time.
1: Right. And they did for the for the aforementioned reason, you know, people um, one of the characters in this, the book is a who survived um, after 207 days in the hospital and multiple surgeries and undergoing hellish treatment um, for, for for the for the fungus that was living inside of him. He still has it actually um, today. But, you know, he's a construction worker, 50 year old construction worker, worked with heavy machinery and you can't be on opioids in that situation yeah. right so steroids do become very popular and you see the growth of, of these kind of you know i call them strip mall pain clinics because at the time i was writing this book i was living in florida and you see these places all over uh, the area of florida where i lived and uh and there's a rise of these places so that you could go in your insurance would pay for it you pop in get your epidural steroid injections sometimes you know it only takes like 20 minutes um, and then you'd be pain-free for a while. So, yeah, they became, they became very popular. And as they became popular in the mid-2000s especially, you start seeing um, met- drug shortages of steroids like methylprednisolone, which was the steroid mm. that these folks got.
0: Better that you try to popular- pronounce it. I was wondering <laughs> about trying to pronounce that word. Methylprednisolone. It's
1: one uh, That's how I say it. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and there are a number of tongue twisters in this book. Uh, I get really deep yes. into the science. Aspergillus
0: fumigatus, et etc. But we'll we'll get to those in a moment. So this okay. is the medication that was used for epidural steroid injections.
1: Correct. Yeah, it's a it's a popular steroid used um, in you know all sorts of steroid injections into your joints or um, you know your. Uh, your epidural space, so it, it's a it's a popular product, and and so when it goes in, there's a commercial version of it made by big pharma drugs in that are made by manufacturers, pharmaceutical manufacturers. When I say that, I mean like Johnson and Johnson, right, mm-hmm. or Bristol Myers Squibb, Pfizer. and they all those drugs are are made under a very specific system that's overseen by the FDA. They have regular inspections. They're required to spend millions on equipment and keep voluminous and detailed records of each step in the process. Now, when those drugs go into shortage for lots of different reasons, supply chain reasons, profitability reasons that, that you know the, the big makers sometimes don't give up on a drug because it's not profitable enough yet patients still want it. That's when compounding pharmacies can step in. And so that's what you saw in this case And a lot of these um, cases is that when a drug goes into shortage is added to FDA's shortage list, compounding pharmacies are then allowed to come in and they're supposed to make uh, a dose based on an individual patient's prescription. But because they're not overseen by the FDA, they're overseen by individual state pharmacy boards, which are often really understaffed and not equipped to handle sophisticated laboratory inspections as would be required for something like this. Uh, they're they're operating with very little oversight, and in this case, you saw, you know, no one had inspected the compounding pharmacy at the center of this case for for years before this happened. there had been no eyes on this, and so you they start making these drugs, and instead of the individual prescriptions that are required to kind of slow down the process, ensure that each drug is made for an individual patient, and there's care put into it, and it's a slow, methodical process, not manufacturing. Uh, they just skirted those rules and began making up prescription names to so they could make thousands of doses at a time like a manufacturer. And they used names like Edgar Allan Poe, Tom Brady, you know, Donald Trump. And anything they could think of, they would put on these prescription forms and then out the door it would go. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of haphazard system that led to this crisis and others that have followed.
0: Well, over the years, uh, you had a- either a big pharma or most of the uh, the compounding uh, was done by local pharmacies wasn't it uh, not by companies it was uh, you you got the prescription from your doctor you went to your local drugstore and uh, that's what uh, that's why that the pharmacists went to school to become a pharmacist to learn how to do that sort of thing
1: That's right. It's like Mr. Gower and it's a wonderful life, right? You have uh, uh, some, you know, you bring in a prescription and the pharmacist goes in the back room and he Mm -hmm. mixes it up and and brings it out. Um, That was the way medicines were made in the United States and around the world for most of history uh, until a terrible disaster um, in the early 1930s killed uh, a bunch of children. It was, uh, you know, um, not contaminated, but poison was put into a cough syrup called sulfanilamide. It was a yeah. huge national disaster, and that created a new law. That um, and and a pharmacist made that uh, that uh, you know that poisonous cough syrup. So a new law was needed, and that's the law: uh, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, that FDR signed, that created FDA oversight of our food and drugs. Um, you know the modern system. Now, and so carved out of that oversight for by FDA was pharmacy compounding, and it remained a popular practice through the mid twentieth century. But as big pharma started making more and more of our drugs, and that money allowed them to also innovate and create cures for m- massive diseases, you know uh, that, that were out there like smallpox. Um, pharmacy compounding shrunk as a uh, as a role, so. Pharmacists really just become kind of um, they dole out FDA approved medicines made by big pharma. So they're they're giving you the, you know, the pills in dosage form that are already made in a factory under FDA supervision. And you see by the 1960s and by the 80s, or early 1980s, that pharmacy compounding becomes like less than 2% of all the drugs made in the United States. It's a really it becomes really small. And that's but. But the law still carves it out, it's still legal to do, it's just not really necessary because that, that need is being filled uh, more and more by big pharma. And that starts to change in the mid 1980s and 1990s when a company in Texas, a chemical company called the uh, Professional Compounding Centers of America, they created, uh, realized that compounding was still legal, that there was a business opportunity here Uh, for drugs that were in shortage and that pharmacists could legally make them as long as they had a prescription. And they started coming up with some of the workarounds that you see popularize this industry, like the pre-printed prescription forms, um, backfilling, meaning they'll make a big batch, uh, sell it to a hospital, and then the hospital will give them names later. Uh, And to get around that that, uh, prescription requirement. And so that's really what brings compounding back is this company and the model that it creates. And then through the 90s and into the 2000s, drug shortages and changes in um, hospital compounding becomes more expensive. A lot of hospitals would do it in-house. They stop doing that because the uh, sterility standards, the industry sterility standards, become more onerous and more expensive. And so they start outsourcing to companies like the New England Compounding Center and others around the United States. And this new industry rises out of that and compounding's back. And it's what these multi-billion new billion dollar industry
0: with these new compounding centers. Uh, some of them actually turn out to be pretty big. For example, New England Compounding Center uh, wound up uh, becoming a 50 million dollar business. Were they uh, exempt from the oversight that was applied to big pharma?
1: Exactly. And, and and many of them still are. Um, and, and that's, you know, another reason why I wanted to write this book. Uh, you know, the big question you ask at the beginning of a process like this is why write this now? Is there a problem that still needs to be fixed? One, of, There were many. One of those is that, yes, so New England Compounding Center and compounding pharmacies today are overseen by state pharmacy boards. They are not overseen by the FDA. Sure. And that's a problem in a lot of, uh, that creates adverse events and 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 issues like this because from state to state you have different capabilities in the number of inspectors they have. You know, when this happened, the state of Massachusetts had three pharmacy inspectors and some 1,500 pharmacies, including a number of compounding pharmacies. Um, they couldn't possibly cover all that and keep, you know, and, and inspect all those facilities. And it's that way throughout the United States. Meanwhile these compounding pharmacies can ship their drugs from state to state so they're not required so they act like a national business they can make drugs in alabama and sell them to customers in california
0: but didn't an investigation of the new england compounding center uh reveal that the company had been in violation of its state license because it had been functioning as a drug manufacturer producing drugs for broad use Rather than filling individual prescriptions.
1: That's yeah. So a, a number of things. States had uh, Colorado and a couple of other states had complained to the Massachusetts board that uh, they were selling drugs um, illegally with you know without prescriptions in their states. In all of those cases, the records show that Massachusetts Board of Pharmacy did not take their license. They did not shut them down. FDA had been in the New England Compounding Center before because FDA can go in, but they go in after something happens. So somebody was killed by the New England Compounding Center's drugs in the early 2000s. And that triggered FDA jurisdiction. They came in, they did a series of um, inspections and meetings with Barry Cadden. And then he lawyered up Barry Catton being
0: the the president of NECC, New England. That's right.
1: Yeah. And he lawyered up. And what happened with that case is they wrote, they wrote a report, but because the state was the oversight regulate, had the authority, that report basically got forwarded to the Massachusetts board and then nothing happens. Um, And this is, you know, a year, a couple years before this disaster um, that it caused. And so, there were numerous chances to do exactly what you said, and none of them worked.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Jason Deeren, D.E.A.R.E.N. His book, "Kill Shot: A Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease," is published by Avery. Uh, the the guy we started talking about, he you actually write about two cases, uh, both in in the South, uh, but Thomas Rubinsky's uh, is the one who uh, we get you pay most attention to? His scans, which have been reproduced in the New England Journal of Medicine, show tiny folds of tissue interrupted by what looks like an off-color cluster in the center. Um, did they? Did anybody understand what those scans were revealing at first?
1: So Not at first. Uh, it would take some time for the laboratory at Vanderbilt. Medical Center to um, to test for fungus and to get a, a positive hit. Uh, so Thomas Rybinski's case was important because it was the first case to come to light. He was the index case in this outbreak. He, you know, it was his illness that brought it to the attention of the state um, health department in Tennessee, and then to CDC. Rybinski's case was interesting because. He suffered from meningitis, you know, they couldn't figure it out. They, were, they thought, you know, it was bacterial at first and treated him for that and it wasn't working. Uh, and then he had these strokes and the scans that you just mentioned uh, showed activity uh, in the brain uh, in, a, in a place that you don't usually see it in a previously healthy person.
0: Because fungi have no clear pathway to the human spinal cord column. That's right. And
1: the, you know, these fungi have been around a lot longer. Um, than we've known them. Uh the, the, the fungus in this case that would end up not the one. So Rybinsky, his case was really interesting because not only because he was the first case, but he he does test positive for a fungus and he's the one that alerts the medical establishment that this is a fung a fungus that's that's hurting these these patients who are starting to emerge um and and die very quickly. Uh but the the type of fungus, the species of fungus Aspergillus, which you mentioned earlier, was what Rybinski's sample brought forth. Yet all of these other cases that are showing up that they think are related, they're not testing positive for the same fungus. They're not getting Aspergillus. They're getting a different fungus.
0: Which is really difficult to pronounce. (laughs) Exerocerum. prostratum. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's why do they give them those names? You know, I always wonder when we see the commercials on television for these uh, commercial pharmaceuticals, why they've come up with those weird names. (laughs) These are Latin. There must be some genius
1: in the pharmacy industry
0: who says, hey, let's call it Pacapulip. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: this, this fungus, you know, it was first described, uh, not until the 1920s. And that was only because it was a pest a pathogen on cash crops, right? So the USDA is like, what the heck is this? Um, and a, a scientist named Charles Drexler. He, uh, he was the first one to kind of uh, characterize it in the scientific literature, but it had, you know, when when it came up in samples, People knew what Aspergillus looked like because it was a it caused right. infections in lungs and things. People, know, you know, it's a pretty common source of fungal infections. Well, Xerohilum, while it's been in the environment for a long time, really was just known as uh, a voracious eater of like corn and plants, not human, mm-hmm. you know, spinal columns and brains. And, and 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 the big reason is what you alluded to. There, it had no way to get there. Uh, there was no way to to enter the spinal column. And so no, we would have never have known that it was an organism well suited for that environment. And it wasn't until it was injected there that we, you know, our medical uh, system and uh, the con- contaminated steroids uh, that were preloaded in these syringes, um, that those that it delivered it directly to this protected area. Um, you know it, and it injected it with steroids, which are anti-inflammatory, so the it you know suppressed the immune system around the injection site immediately, giving the fungus a chance to gain hold. And then once it was there in the spinal column, it it did what every organism in a in a suitable habitat does, It started to reproduce. Uh, it did well, but it needed food. Um, and Eerohylum likes iron. Uh, we learned from the scientific literature, and there was no blood in the spinal column. It's just you know clear spinal fluid, or there shouldn't be, um, and so it moved through the body and got to the brain, where mm. there's a blood-rich environment, and that's why uh, the strokes were occurring. It, uh, it it was it was looking for food, and once it got there, it
0: just grew. Do we have any idea how it even wound up in the steroid injections?
1: We have an idea. Uh, So the records that uh, I got a hold of uh, from NECC did do its own environmental monitoring and had one staffer um, that was in charge of going around with little sponges and wiping them around the room and then putting them in a dish and and seeing what if anything grew and if it grew she'd keep a little record of it. She didn't do any more than that, didn't have a microscope, didn't have any sort of training on identifying you know, whether it's a fungus or a bacterium. Uh, but she did do that basic level. And we know from the records, from those records, that there was fungus growing in that clean room and in that facility in multiple spots throughout the year that this happens. And the closest you can get to how it gets in the drugs is there were positive mold hits on the same shelf where they stored this drug uh, before, you know, and and so there was mold there. We know it was near and close proximity. How it actually got on and in the vials is still a mystery.
0: There are a, a lot of the uh, the people who uh, come into this story are women. Uh, we started with Dr. April Pettit, who is treating uh, Rybinski. And then uh, there are a number of other women th- uh, who are involved in one way or another. Is this an area of, of uh, medicine where women are more likely to gravitate toward?
1: I don't think there's any evidence of that that I found uh I just think that the you know the doctors and scientists that i can, that worked on this case um happened to be women um and even more and some so rather heroic would, absolutely and you know there's one of one of the joys in 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 being able to work on a story for so long like this um is is, is there are you uncovered stories that weren't told like you'd mentioned of course there was excellent news coverage around the outbreak um, in many, in multiple outlets uh, in 2012 and and even in 2013. And then some, you know, and then kind of faded away of course over the years. And then some coverage of the trial um, in 2017 as well. But there were a lot of stories connected to this uh, of heroism among um, the scientists who really saved a lot of lives um, that weren't told. And one of those is a woman named Beverly Jones, a uh, fungal expert in uh, Virginia who works in the state lab who was the first to be able to kind of solve the riddle of what this fungus was so that first case we talked about Thomas Rybinski had one kind of fungus that was not showing up in the others um, bodies and and it was it was a sticking point it was a it was a really nobody even you know the experts at CDC um, putting it under their microscope could weren't figuring it out and weeks were going by more you know hundreds of people are coming forward getting sick, some dying and getting the identity of this microbe was really important for guiding treatment um, to start. And so she working alone in her lab was able to coax a sample of this fungus into a, to grow um, using nothing but plain water. She called it making the fungus angry. She said she learned in school that when you put a fungus, a certain fungus in water, just plain water it gets angry and it'll grow. Yeah. Um, and that's the way she described it. And so it did grow. It did become angry. And she was able to get a large enough sample to get it under her microscope. And once she did, she could identify it by eye. She'd seen it before. She'd studied it um, because uh, in, in Virginia, she'd seen it in uh, sinus infection patients that you know, in whose samples that she'd had in her laboratory. And so she was the first person to, to identify this. And she sent her samples to CDC, CDC, um, Confirmed her work through DNA analysis um, and that was a huge break in this case and um, a story I was really happy to tell because Beverly is uh, You know, she said her work saved a lot of lives as did a lot of the doctors and epidemiologists who worked in this case
0: You mentioned Barry Cadden who is the part owner of NACC as president and head pharmacist Didn't he call his company the Ferrari of compounders? <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's for the exact reason you wouldn't want um, somebody who's making drugs that are going to be injected into your heart or spine or eyes. Um, He was, he, he, his selling point for NECC, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is a, this is, and this is happening today. There are drug shortages commonly. If you go to FDA's website, just put in Google FDA drug shortages, you will see a long list of drug shortages. And that's where compounding pharmacies come in. And a lot of these drugs in, you know, and including during COVID, um, compounding pharmacies have been cleared to make all sorts of injectable drugs during okay. COVID.
0: You mean that um, injection I got, the Pfizer injection might not have come from Pfizer? No.
1: So that's, that's different. So if it's from Pfizer, it's from Pfizer. Mm-hmm. That's a manufacturer. These would be other drugs that would be like, um, midazolam, uh, uh which is a sedative used, um, uh, you know, to, when they in- intubate people, um, mm-hmm. there, and there are some other um, and steroids, uh, dexamethasone, uh, which is being used as a treatment in COVID-19 patients, can be made by compounding pharmacies, and you won't you wouldn't know that unless you asked your doctor, because it's not like it's you know on the label most of the time. So um, you know that's those are the drugs we're talking about. Not um, you know if it, if it's got a Pfizer label on it, it was made by Pfizer. Um, okay, but in this case, with,
0: uh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's the ones without a label <laughs> that you have to be worried about, and that's the problem here.
0: And at NECC turned out to be a sloppy operation with unqualified staff, mold and bacteria contaminated lab surfaces, expired medications, and wound up infecting 14,000 patients in 23 states, resulting in 100 deaths uh, from three lots that would just have been distributed to 75 medical facilities.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it uh, those lots each contained thousands of vials, uh, and they were sent out. Uh, you know, they should have been sent out with individual prescriptions for individual pa- patients uh, and been made in a in a slower manner. But then we get back to the Ferrari. So uh, when an did... ECC and and their selling point was that they could they could provide these drugs, they could provide them safely, and they could provide them quickly and faster than anyone else.
0: So when did uh, the CDC? Uh... Think that it might be traced back to NECC. Didn't they uh, interview Cadden who uh, to to find out the cause of the outbreak?
1: Right, that's a pivotal scene in the book. Uh, early on, about ten days into the outbreak, uh, the the CDC gets alerted from the state of Tennessee that there's these mysterious cases, uh, and and CDC they ask CDC for help. And one of the thing the epidemiologists at CDC start doing is tracing the supply chain for all of these sick people had been treated with, you know, had gotten epidural steroid injections. They'd figured that out. But during that process, there's a you know dozen or so products that they were each was exposed to. And they were all the same products because they were all coming from one clinic at that point in time. One of those products was the steroid, which was NECC's product. And so as part of their uh, investigation, they called... Uh, Barry Cadden and the co-owner of NECC, Greg Canigliaro, and they have a phone call with him to ask if they had any problems, such as I mentioned earlier, the mold hits in the clean room from their environmental monitoring or, you know, any failed tests. Um, if they sent something out to a lab for, for testing. And um, according to everyone that I spoke with on that call, um, and testimony in court as well, uh, you know, there was no information given from NECC to warn them that there might be a problem uh, in their clean room. In fact, they assured, them, they assured them that they followed all of the sterility standards um, from the United States Pharmacopeia, uh, which is kind of the industry, you know, standard setting organization. Um, and we know now that that wasn't true. They weren't following those guidelines. And so, yeah, it was a lie.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Feels like I took some oh, oh. bad OK, uh, well, feels like he took some bad drugs. <laughs> but Before we get back to my conversation with Jason Duren, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most of the public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard financially by the COVID-19 pandemic. And a lot of our longtime contributors have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we are asking anyone who is able to do uh, at this time uh uh, to, to, to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep Community Radio and Leonard Lopate at Large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call 516-620-3602 right now or go online to give to wbaiorg that's 516-620-3602 or give2wbai.org online. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a really great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Let It Paid at Large. If you call 516 3602 or go to give2wbai.org today, we would be happy to send you a copy of the book that we're discussing Killshot, a shadow industry, a deadly disease by my guest, Jason Deeren. All you need to do is call right now, 516 3602 or go to your computer or smartphone and visit give2wbai.org and sign up at the monthly rate of $10, $15, $20, any amount that you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We'll take care of the rest. You don't even have to mention the book to the call center operator or check any additional boxes online. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of London Global at Large during today's show, and my staff will take care of the rest. And BAI buddies are a great way to support this program while providing WBAI with a steady source of support. But however you choose to contribute maybe just a lump sum. The important thing is that you take that step to keep the show in this legendary station, the only one on the New York City radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. We don't have corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. Keep us on the air, please. Again, the number, 516-620-3602, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Let It Locate At Large. From all of us at the show in this station, we thank you very much. And now I return to my guest, uh, Jason Dieren, whose book, "Kill Shot: A Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease, is published by Avery. And uh, before we return to the topic, on a totally unrelated topic, I'm curious about your recent tweet, a tribute to the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who died recently at the age of 101. Were you friends?
1: Uh, no, not friends. My, I, I was a... Uh, I'm a long time San Franciscan. I lived there for 23 years um, before I moved east uh, a few years ago. Um, And like everybody who lives in San Francisco, Ferlinghetti loomed large um, as a lover of poetry, um, as a lover of bookstores. Um, City Lights Books is a place that um, I still go back and visit family every year. Well, at least, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, And I, I spend a lot of time there. It's my favorite city. It's my home. Um, and uh, I miss it, and one of the things I miss is City Lights, um, and, you know, and now... Uh,
0: he published Alan uh, Gensler. He God. published how? He, he did indeed. Wrote, he went to the Supreme Court. And he published his own poetry as well, and I always loved his uh, description of of his uh, his place in history, because he's often been called the godfather of bee poets. He said, actually, I'm... The last of the Bohemian poets, (laughs) he said, I used (laughs) to wear a beret. (laughs) Well, anyway, a sad loss, but he was one hundred and one. And he really had a major impact on American poetry.
1: Oh, yeah. And um, and and book selling.
0: Hmm. Well, let's get back to the story you tell in uh, in this book. the The disease, the illness lingered for a while. It was actually often slow, there was slow progress. Did that make it more difficult for people, the CDC, epidemi- uh, epidemiologists, uh, the state public health officials, the individual doctors, to figure out what was going on? Epidemiologists. Yeah. I'm sorry.
1: No, no problem. There's there's a lot of uh, mouthfuls uh, in this book, um, and I've you know spent time with it, so it's it's easier for me to get them out. Uh, yes. So the the big problem in this uh, in in figuring out how to treat these patients at first was um, the figuring out the source. Uh, as we discussed, you know, before the break, uh, NECC and its owner um president barry cadden weren't forthcoming with cdc when they asked the questions about hey you know could your drugs be at fault here and so they they had to look at all of these other products so that's one um you know hurdle that takes time to overcome they have to trace the supply chains for all of these places and see if there's been recalls and all that that's when two they don't know what the microbe is for weeks um so they know it's meningitis um they get start, you know, um, recommending ant- antifungals weeks into the um, the disaster. You know, as people, you know, there's dozens of dead already, um, but they don't know how to target those antifungals yet because they're not sure what the microbe is. You know, what what its species is, and and different antifungals work differently on different species. Um, and so, until they could figure all these uh, questions out on the source of the disease. Um, they couldn't adequately treat it. And so, you know, a couple of months would go by really until the, the, the medical establishment in multiple States, you know, you have this going on in Michigan, Indiana, uh, uh, of course, Tennessee, um, there were cases in New Jersey, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Florida, you know, they're, they're kind of all over the place. And so you have this, um, you know, kind of slow moving mass casualty event. Um, and a group of investigators trying to figure it out and that's really how what drew me also to the story was was telling the story of these scientists investigators Mm -hmm. and how they figure this out when the you know the company isn't being forthright and they have to use their skills both as scientists in the laboratory but also just as as investigators and in terms of the long-term effects of this you know those who died um left their families and, and there's that, but there were hundreds of people who didn't die, who did survive after treatment. Yeah. And you know some of the, all of them, um, something like 48%, there was a long-term study that was just released by um, some, some doctors and, and CDC last summer. Um, I forget the percentages, and I don't wanna say them wrong on the air, but uh, it was a large number of folks who were injected with these drugs still today, um, suffer from chronic pain are now on opioids because they they don't want to take steroids. Um, some uh, they're not sure if they were able to get the fungus out of their body, so they remain on these powerful antifungals. Uh, needless to say, they can't work. Um, and these are you know hundreds of people that fall into these categories. And so just the just the lingering lingering effects of this one you know large outbreak um, is it, it continues today, and it's 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 something that isn't going to go away anytime soon for, for these folks.
0: And in many different states, investigators connected the compounding pharmacy to Michigan clinics, including Michigan pain specialists in Genoa Township, which had dispensed the NECC-contaminated steroids. Now, the uh, the CDC has been the subject of some controversy recently. Uh, is, is Are we talking about the same epidemic epidemic Uh, intelligence service that's been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Well, some of the members um, may be the same, but, uh, you know, the epidemic intelligence service uh, has a rotating um, cast, right? So it's, it's something that was created Um, Back in the in the mid 20th century, uh, and it's in doctors and other scientists go through it and gain training and then go off and to do to do other jobs. So So, during this pandemic, those in the EIS, um, Epidemic Intelligence Service now during during this time would be different than the ones who were working um, in it during this case.
0: Now, there were congressional hearings as well. And Margaret Hamburg, the FDA commissioner was questioned? What did they want to know? Well, the big uh,
1: political piece of this, um, you know, President Obama just won a second term. there was a this was twenty twelve, so there was a, uh, a, a presidential campaign going on as this was all unfolding. And once in in, in November of twenty twelve, the, the first congressional hearings occurred um, to, to find out, you know, what's the cause of this. Um, and even though compounding pharmacies like NECC were overseen are overseen still by state pharmacy boards, um, many of the Republicans and some of the Democrats in Congress wanted to make a political point that, uh, you know, that this was the Obama administration's fault. And so they, uh, brought its FDA commissioner, who you just mentioned, Margaret Hamburg, before both chambers um, in two different days and peppered her with questions about the FDA's missed opportunities um, that I I'd, I'd mentioned earlier in this interview, you know, when they'd been there in the early 2000s during the administration of George W. Bush, not Obama, um, and And uh, and and kind of made the hearings instead of making them about the victims and the suffering of hundreds of people, they end up making it kind of a a political statement about, you know, how FDA dropped the ball in this case. Um, You know, in all my reporting on this, what I learned is that the FDA Under multiple administrations, starting back in the early 90s under the Bill Clinton administration, all the way through George W. Bush's administration and the Obama administration had made multiple unsuccessful attempts to take pharmacy compounding out of the state's um, oversight.
0: And and, and Margaret Hamburg said that uh, that was a problem that. The agency right. was obligated to defer to Massachusetts authorities, and she had uh, they had the, the direct oversight over pharmacies, not uh, the FDA.
1: That's right. Under the system that as it exists still, um, in most cases, uh, the FDA is a reactive force in these cases. So they can respond and get authority when people are already dying or hurt. They're not going to go in preventively and do, you know, kind of surprise inspections, which are really the only way to keep a business like this um, on its toes. Uh, if an FDA inspector can show up any month and and pop in for an inspection, you're gonna you're gonna keep your labs clean, right? That's not the case, and it's still not the case. Um, and so, yeah, what Hamburg did was argue the case that FDA had long. Sought this authority. Um, they'd been thwarted. Uh, they ended, the compounding industry actually has a surprisingly, uh, you know, for for an industry that many people haven't heard of, um, they have a surprisingly effective lobby. Um, they don't spend as much money as big pharma, of course. They don't have that much money, but they have a lot of bodies, and they're really good at mobilizing them. And they've got um, support from some key lawmakers and in, in in key um, assignments. And so. And they've been able throughout the years to kind of scuttle, to even debate about um, giving FDA authority over compounding pharmacies, and so it's been a it's been a losing effort. And many hoped or thought that an event of this magnitude, like the sulfanilamide disaster in the 30s, leading to you know the the creation of mod, the modern FDA oversight system. Uh, that this would do the same thing and create a new modern oversight system for compounding pharmacies to ensure that these badly needed drugs—I mean, these are these are medicines that are needed um, and need to be made in, safely, um, and safely—and that that they would be put under some sort of new um, oversight—and and that just didn't happen.
0: Well, wasn't there um, a bill and- to grant the FDA more authority uh, to regulate and monitor the manufacturing of compounding drugs? Uh, The Drug Quality and Security Act passed by the Senate on November 27, 2013, but not the full Congress. Uh,
1: Kind of. Yeah. So what happened is the the bill, uh, as written and drafted by the Senate, um, was bipartisan. It had both Republicans and uh, Democrats in support would have given FDA much of the authority it sought to uh, to inspect and measure uh, and track Um, the drugs being made by this uh by this industry uh what happened is that the house which was controlled by republicans who were um, not in favor of fda oversight um at the time uh negotiated um down basically the bill was was all but dead before it got signed it was uh it it, it was not going to happen and and here you have this major healthcare disaster going on in, in the nation and and Congress and, and the administration really wanted to pass a bill. Um, and in response, the way that they revived the bill was they made it voluntary. And so most of the provisions in the DQSA that get signed by President Obama are voluntary. And and so you, you, you basically have an, a bill with a name and some modest gains in oversight, but mostly a voluntary system. And guess what? Most compounding pharmacies to this day have not volunteered for FDA oversight. Um, and uh, you know, in states, um, to their credit, some states have done uh, a lot um, on this because they are still the overseers of this group. But again, the system's only as strong as the weakest links, and it's a it's a patchwork state led system. So, so,
0: you, so we can so expect you can- more situations like this in the future. Although. Well, Luckily we, we've had popped up. Oh, we've had? Well, yeah, first, I let mean, me tell it, people them, who you are. Uh, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Jason Deren. His book, Shot: A Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease, published by Avery. So there have been other uh, outbreaks of similar sorts
1: so nothing to this, quite this extent, yeah. but um, you know, a few years back in Texas, um, there was a compounding pharmacy who erred in making eye injections and um, blinded or partially blinded um, some 75 people in the Dallas area. Uh, there have been cases where infants um, received compounded morphine um, for uh, in, in hospitals and were overdosed because the compounding pharmacies made the drugs too strong. Um, yeah. There, there have been other instances. So, you know, one of the questions I asked myself is like, well, did they fix the, you know, when I started on this was, well, have they fixed the problem? Is there a reason to do this story? And the answer was no. Um, as I just mentioned about the the law, it didn't really change. And the, the other thing was when I started looking for now, again, no one tracks this industry, there is no reporting requirement to the FDA like there is with big pharma manufacturers. So, it's all kind of a self-reported mechanism. No one knows how many really uh, errors lead to deaths or injuries, but you know sometimes there are big enough events that they they get media coverage, like the blindings I just mentioned, or the infant overdoses that I mentioned. And there were others. Uh, there were some uh, cluster of deaths related to um, improperly compounded and mixed drugs in New Jersey. Um, uh, in, uh, 2014 or 2015 and, uh, and a number that I, that I outline at the end of my book. So it's, and it's an ongoing problem.
0: And we're close to the end of the show. And I want to cover some very important things that happened. First of all, weren't there numerous lawsuits against NECC, uh, uh, were, did, uh, the, uh, the victims and the families of the victims, uh, get any money as a result? And, and what about, uh, Barry Cadden, uh, was he charged by, uh, by federal prosecutors.
1: Yeah, so Barry Cadden went um, on trial. The uh, and this is outlined in detail in the book. So if people are interested, yeah. um, you know, I definitely want. The, I didn't want them to, to go to it. the
0: whole trial because yeah, no, because it's fine. Part of the I mean, in the, the, the end,
1: in the end, the federal government makes a um, kind of you know. Uh, a risky but but really ambitious um, legal case against um, Barry Cadden and his um, his uh, pharmacist, his chief pharmacist, Glenn Chin, and they charged them with 25 um, murder counts, uh, second degree murder counts in federal court under the RICO law, um, and in uh, that case unfolded in 2017, and, and and really is is the initial thing that piqued my interest, um, you know. I, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but most people well, probably they, uh, no, who the, followed well, the case know what happened.
0: I, I'm I, the details we won't go into, but they were charged with racketeering and murder, convicted mm-hmm. of racketeering, but not murder. Now, 100 people right. had died. So why not murder?
1: Well, the reason that, uh, the, you know, I talked to one of the jurors who uh, was one of one of the, the uh, people who stuck to her guns, uh, not to acquit is that she she believed that hosp- the hospitals and clinics who injected these patients uh, should should have shouldered uh, a portion of the blame, uh, even though that's not what was being asked of her. That's this is the these are the decisions that she made in her mind, and that she didn't believe that Cadden uh, deserved all the blame and didn't. And so you know she was okay um, getting him on the fraud but not on the murders. And, and, and so he ends up with a nine year prison sentence, um, Fortune but later this sentence. year, the, the state of Michigan, because the feds failed to get murder convictions, the state of Michigan, the attorney general in Michigan is bringing murder cases against both of them, um, which, uh, for 11 murders in that state. Um, and that's, Ooh. uh, that's, that trial has been uh, put forward by the judge after a preliminary hearing. And, uh, you know, the pandemic is slowing everything down, but uh, could start, you know, sometime later this year.
0: You write that during the nearly three years that you spent reporting this book, you gave everyone many opportunities to participate through interviews or written questions and answers, but both Barry Cadden and Glenn Chin declined. Why do you think?
1: Uh, I, I can only speculate that there defense attorneys, um, because there's an ongoing murder, uh, trial, um, looming on the horizon, uh, you know, didn't want them to talk to me. Um, they didn't respond to my letters in prison. Um, so I don't know, I hadn't, I haven't heard directly from them, but I did talk to, um, to both of their lawyers, uh, in the federal cases. And, um, that, you know, that was the, the answer I got from them. They didn't think They didn't, their lawyers didn't think it was a good idea that they, you know, talk to a a reporter.
0: Should I assume that NECC no longer exists?
1: Right. NECC was shut down um, shortly after they were discovered as the source of this and never, obviously, never reopened. Um, Today, NECC, the building still exists. And um, I walked in there actually in Boston when I was doing some reporting They, you know, because it was a NECC had a recycling business next door, Um, one of the things investigators discovered um, was a huge pile of refuse right outside in the parking lot, um, right outside where they were making these drugs, which, you know, a lot of people um, consider kind of a a bad omen when you're trying to run a sterile. uh, clinic inside or sterile laboratory inside. Uh, and I walked in, there were still some of the uh, NECC equipment around, but they've turned it into a uh, place called shop recycled. So they're now taking, uh, furniture and other, uh, refuse from that pile and, uh, and, and you know, refurbishing it and trying to sell it.
0: Just one other thing is the drug uh, we hope uncontaminated still being prescribed
1: methylprednisolone is a a steroid that yes, is, is being um, prescribed and it's completely safe if made under the right um, circumstances. So I think the key, if you're getting any sort of injection uh, from surgery or anything like that, if you have a question, ask if it was made in a compounding pharmacy, obviously this does not apply to the um, vaccines that, uh, we're all hoping to get soon. Um, those are made under strict FDA supervision and are probably one of the safest, safest things you could put into your body in my personal opinion, but, uh, compounded injections, which are, you know, steroids, eye injections, cardioplegia, things like that, um, Drugs that can be compounded, um, you know, you can ask questions about that and know uh, if it's a compounded drug, just ask questions about it. Your, your doctor or your, your pharmacist should know and be able to tell you where it comes from. And, uh, you know, a lot of these facilities are safe and are above board. But unfortunately, without some sort of strict oversight, we don't know how many bad ones are out there.
0: Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been fascinating. My guest has been Jason Deeren. His book, Kill Shot. Uh, Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease published by Avery. Thanks again. Hey, thank
1: you so much.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And you can also find links to our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a comment about a show or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you to support this station. If you care about London, located at Large and all the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this legendary community radio station alive. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable giving by going online to give2wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now. To show your support. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing today, Killshot, A Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease by my guest, Jason and It's our way of saying thanks for your help in keeping this whole thing going. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you so much. And we hope that you'll join us For tomorrow's show, when terrorism expert and senior fellow at the Freeman Spoli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, Martha Crenshaw, will discuss her recent New York Times op-ed, I've studied terrorism for over 40 years. Let's talk about what comes next. We spent decades looking for a threat from overseas when we needed to be looking closer to home. We'll see you then.